Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Happy Monday and welcome to Just the Truth Podcast, which is sponsored by the Thomas More Society, a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect for law in life, family, and religious liberty. You can find out more about our great work at thomasmoresociety.org. Well, I'm Jenna Ellis. Today is Monday, and we are talking about Joe Biden and his executive order to create a commission on the Supreme Court. So according to scotusblog.com, their article says this, President Joe Biden will issue an executive order to create a commission to study potential reforms to the Supreme Court, the White House announced on Friday. The announcement fulfilled a campaign promise by Joe Biden, who last fall proposed the idea of a commission after he declined to endorse efforts by liberals to expand the Supreme Court, efforts that Justice Stephen Breyer criticized in a speech on Tuesday at Harvard Law School. In its statement, the White House indicated that the commission will be a bipartisan one made up of experts on the court and the court reform debate. These experts, the White House added, will consider a variety of topics related to the Supreme Court and Supreme Court reform, including so this is important, this isn't just about court packing, including the size of the court, the justice's tenure, and the court's practices more broadly. So then uh, this particular piece at scotusblog.com goes on to list uh, the full list of the commission members uh, below. So First and foremost, we have to point out a couple of things here uh, from just a purely constitutional perspective, because remember, when we're talking about what is and is not uh, constitutional, it's not just whether we like this idea, whether we think it's a good idea, uh, but whether the government agent, in this case, uh, the executive branch, can do a certain thing. So, of course, you know, anyone can start a commission. This doesn't have to be just government. Um, This can, you know, be uh, any sort of think tank that wants to publish white papers and talk about uh, what they think would be great in terms of judicial reform. But those particular recommendations would have to follow the the, uh, U.S. Constitution and would actually have to uh, propose any sort of reform method according to Uh, the mechanisms provided in the U.S. Constitution uh, for the U.S. Supreme Court. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The second thing that we need to point out is that the list of commission members uh, supposedly is bipartisan. So in the sense that we think of bipartisan 
that would mean that, you know, there's there's equity and there's equal participation. I mean, the Democrats are all about diversity, right? They want to make sure that everybody's re- uh, represented. Well, one of the first things that I notice about this list of commission members is that not a single one was on President Trump's 1776 commission, where there were a lot of great scholars, uh, constitutional law scholars, uh, many of whom I know personally, not one is on Joe Biden's commission. Uh, And so there are only a couple on here that you could even possibly term as um, maybe potentially conservatives or independents. Uh, This is just laughable as, um, you know, this is when I when I actually agree with Karl Rove. He said over the weekend uh, on a different news network that uh, this is just laughable if anyone tries to say that this is bipartisan. So so we know that Biden out of the gate is completely lying like he always does. And um, this particular executive order is focused on uh, basically trying to rubber stamp uh, any policy or any legislation that comes from a Democrat majority Congress or a Democrat Democrat controlled executive branch. Um, That's obviously what Joe Biden's end game here is or his handlers, um, if he's even aware of what he's doing. Um, I like to say Joe Biden in the the context that he's just um, he's being handled by everyone else. Um, he doesn't probably even know what he's doing. So when we say Joe Biden, obviously, we mean um, the deep state sinister powers that be in uh, the White House that we, the American people, don't even know who's in control. Um, is this Kamala Harris? Is this Susan Rice? Is this Obama um, with his pen and his phone uh, phoning into the White House? I mean, we don't actually even know who is really in control of uh, the executive branch. And that's a scary thing for America, uh, quite frankly. But when we look at this whole um, commission to study the potential reforms to the Supreme Court, um, we have to first ask ourselves, is is reform um, a good idea? How can that take place? And what was the original intent of the Supreme Court and the judicial branch uh, within the context of the U.S. Constitution uh, when it was originally ratified in 1787? And um, those are all really good questions. And we have to go through and analyze those and make sure that um, any suggested reform is still Uh, aiming the focus at the goal of a legitimate government, which, as we know, with our mission-oriented goal of government, which is to preserve and protect the individual rights of we the people. Um, That's the only form of uh, government, the only goal of government that is legitimate, regardless of the form and shape any government takes. And so uh, when the founders originally debated this in in 1787, Interestingly, this whole concept of the Supreme Court um, and the way that Article Three, which uh, which gives the ability for um, one Supreme Court and any other such inferior courts as Congress uh, will designate uh, that that constitutional mandate to be created. Um, there was no actual concept of judicial review in the sense that we understand it today. Now, I think. Um, most scholars uh, on both sides would agree that the judicial branch um, has has become a completely runaway branch. Um, there was not an original intent for the judicial branch to be nearly as uh, powerful as they've become. Um, judicial review is a concept that uh, constitutional scholars debate all the time in terms of the extent and the overreach and the binding precedent on 
the country and other uh, lower inferior courts uh, rather than just being the highest supreme appellate court. So this whole idea of judicial supremacy um, is actually something that wasn't part of the original uh, intent of the U.S. Constitution. And in fact, um, if you go back and read the Federalist Papers, also read the Anti-Federalist Papers. Um, The Federalist Papers, of course, by three brilliant lawyers, uh, John Jay, Uh, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, they all wrote the Federalist Papers that were um, arguments and almost like a, um, a legislative history, if you will, of why they promoted the ratification of the U.S. Constitution in its current uh, or its original form, uh, rather, in 1787, um, and how they saw that particular uh, separation of powers, the design of the U.S. Constitution as a better method of preserving and protecting our individual rights over the Articles of Confederation, which had governed uh, the United States um, from the beginning up until the Constitutional Convention, because many of our founders saw the Articles of Confederation as too weak, um, not really able to achieve the goal. So, um, so remember, when we are talking about the best form of government, um, the U.S. Constitution is not a divinely inspired document. It's not the only method of government that um, is potentially a worthy system. This is just the founders' uh, best shot, if you will, of uh, of implementing a system and a design that will achieve the goal, which they all unanimously recognized in 1776 um, and the Declaration of Independence as uh, seeing that truth is, is self-evident. And one of those truths is that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And in order to achieve that goal, civil governments are instituted among men and they derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. And so our founders unanimously recognized self-evident truth of our rights being unalienable, uh, meaning we can't buy, sell, infringe, abridge them. Um, they're, they're part of the essence of who we are as human beings made in the image of God. And they understood that the only legitimate government is goal-oriented to preserve and protect those rights. And so when they debated this and they debated the best form and structure of government at the Constitutional Convention, um, there were a lot of great founders that uh, that promoted and, and ultimately did, you know, we did ratify the U.S. Constitution in its form in 1787. Uh, we, we very quickly... Uh, proposed and as part of this whole uh, this whole concept of ratifying the Constitution and the agreement to um, we quickly amended it the first 10 amendments are the Bill of Rights which we've talked about on this podcast are uh, really what I call the Bill of Protections um, which are specifically enumerated rights that government most often infringes on and so our founders in their wisdom uh, saw fit to specifically tell Congress listen this is what you can't do because if we go back back to uh, the the U.S. Constitution and the specific limited powers that are given to each of the three federal branches. The only article uh, and the only um, provision that starts with this word all 
is Article 1, Section 1, which is talking about Congress's legislative authority. It says all legislative power. That means that the executive branch cannot legislate. And also importantly to our conversation today, the judicial branch cannot legislate. So when we think about this in the context of judicial supremacy, and we'll define that here in a minute, we think about this in the uh, in in the realm of what the judiciary actually functions like today, and we think about uh, what the original intent was, well, we have to go back and see that the founder said all legislative authority is given to Congress. All means all. It doesn't mean some. It means all. And so, uh, so that was the initial structure of, of the U.S. Constitution was to separate powers into three coordinate branches um, that's a very important phrase to say coordinate rather than co-equal because co-equal would, um, would tend to mean that the judicial branch is just as powerful as each of, uh, the other two branches, the executive and the legislative. And in the original, uh, context of the constitution, the judicial branch was meant to be inferior. And in fact, you have Alexander Hamilton, you have the founders, uh, saying that very precisely. So they're not actually co-equal branches, they're coordinate branches. Um, and so, so you have this design of the U S constitution that really, I mean, in article three, if you go in, uh, and you actually look at, the U.S. Constitution and the language. Um, Article three is is really short by comparison of of the other two uh, political branches, uh, and that's also for a purpose because the judicial branch was not meant to have um, such a broad, extensive ability to to essentially legislate, which is what they're doing from the bench in this whole idea of judicial supremacy. And so when you look at um, Article 3, Section 1, it says this, the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall, at stated times, receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. Okay, so a couple of things to point out just within section one, the judicial power. It doesn't say all, but it does say the judicial power of the United States is vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. So basically this is saying one Supreme Court is required. You have to have a court of last resort. You have to have a final adjudication on the merits of a claim. Otherwise you could uh, end up having this um, appeal and appeal and appeal into um, ad nauseum. You have to be able to have a final adjudication. Uh, So that's really important to have one Supreme Court Um, in authority, and then inferior courts underneath that, um, as Congress will establish from time to time. And then the judges um, shall hold their offices during good behavior. Uh, That basically means that they're lifetime appointed. And good behavior um, has been, of course, debated. Um, There are uh, provisions in the Judiciary Act and so forth that uh, judges have, federal judges, have actually been uh, impeached and a few of them removed um, for, uh, for violating that provision. And throughout the course of our nation's history, um, impeachment has been a mechanism of the legislative branch. Uh, of course, the same way as, uh, articles of impeachment were, um, 
were were passed in the House for the president. We saw that, you know, twice uh, just recently, which is absolutely ridiculous. But um, the articles of impeachment for a federal office holder, like a federal judge, have to go through the House, and then um, the the trial is by the Senate pursuant to that provision in Article 1 and that um, legislative branch's authority to initiate articles of impeachment. So um, so that's really the only thing um, in Section 1. So it talks about the creation. Um, Section 2 says, The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made or which shall be made under authority to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and consuls. Um, and it goes on and on and on. And part of this also is um, between a state and uh, between citizens of different states. So um, so original jurisdiction, this is, of course, where we got the Texas versus Pennsylvania uh, lawsuit during the election integrity a uh, couple of months there and why the Supreme Court was the court of original jurisdiction and could not decline to hear that case even though they did. That was an unconstitutional action. It was a violation of Article 3, Section 2.1 and um, and uh, and 2.2. So, um, so this is where we get the judicial power, right? Uh, But it doesn't talk about judicial supremacy or the idea of judicial review. And this is where if we go back then uh, to the Federalist Papers, to the Anti-Federalist Papers, we have the Federalists uh, advocating for the ratification of the Constitution in this original design. But then the Anti-Federalists are important to read only because um, they point out what they perceive to be some flaws in the original design of the U.S. Constitution. And remember, um, you can still like me. I love our Constitution. I am a huge advocate for our Constitution. Um, I think it's a brilliant design. Is it perfect? Well, um, depending on what we're what we're talking about, um, the answer, of course, is no. Uh, that's why the founders understood and provided for a mechanism to amend the U.S. Constitution to basically tweak the design, and uh, and say there are ways that we can modify this um, to to better orient and be more precise in achieving our goal of preserving and protecting all individual rights that come from God, our Creator, and so. The founders understood that this was their best shot at designing government, and they did an an amazing, amazing, amazing job. That doesn't mean that they were absolutely perfect. And so it's important to go back and read the Anti-Federalist Papers to say, well, you know, now that we've had this uh, 250-year-long experiment, um, have there been some ways that the founders um, could have provided other uh, provisions or are there ways that we could amend the U.S. Constitution to better achieve that goal? Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Anti-Federalist 15 is an essay that appeared in the Massachusetts Gazette 
1787 and um, was reprinted from um, the Freeman's Journal. And uh, this particular one uh, was from uh, the state of Rhode Island and, uh, and discussed very, very briefly, I mean, it's only four paragraphs long, um, talking about why the state of Rhode Island refused to send delegates to the federal convention. Uh, they believed that the Articles of Confederation, um, which if reexamined with attention, they said, we shall find worthy of great regard. And so they, um, they ultimately thought that the Articles of Confederation were better than the proposed, at that point, U.S. Constitution. And one of the reasons that they gave was uh, the composition of the Supreme Court. So uh, they, the author here talks about how a, um, a Supreme Continental Court is to have almost in every case appellate jurisdiction as to both law and fact, which signifies, they say, if there's any meaning in words, the setting aside of the trial by jury. Um, and so they're talking about how the, um, the U.S. Supreme Court, in the sense that it was contended for in Article 3 in the U.S. Constitution, um, could ultimately become um, essentially a, a justice oligarchy, which is actually what we see today. And I have long said and have been an advocate for um, judicial reform in the sense that the founders did not provide for a mechanism to restrain the U.S. Supreme Court or a method to overturn a decision that was clearly uh, judicial legislation, that was clearly um, an overreach and was from an activist Supreme Court. Like we've seen the line of case precedent since 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut. Um, and that initial case that was on was one of the first Planned Parenthood contraceptive cases. Um, that Supreme Court um, under Justice uh, Warren was knew that they didn't have the ability within the federal uh, branch and within the federal judicial system to make a decision um, overriding state sovereignty on the issue of um, of contraceptives and um, and healthcare generally and um, abortion, all of those things we recognize and we know um, is a state issue. And um, states can have different laws and legislation concerning abortion, contraceptives, healthcare, other things, uh, but. That was a case that was decided based on um, based on judicial activism, and the entire line of precedent following that case um, that that resulted in Roe versus Wade in 1973, that has resulted in other of the so-called social issues that have uh, been an extreme overreach. Um, even Justice Roberts, who you know none of us are really a fan of right now, right? He was actually very correct in one of the best dissents that he ever wrote was in Obergefell versus Connecticut in uh, in uh, 2015, which. Um, which, of course, was saying it doesn't matter what you think policy-wise or, or emotionally um, about same-sex marriage. What matters is that the judicial branch and the Supreme Court don't have any ability to decide this and override the constitutional amendments, the state constitutions. Um, over 30 states had provided amendments to their state constitution only recognizing marriage as between one man and one woman. And so, um, so this is where the judicial branch has gone so far off the rails. And our founders 
uh, because the the founders that promoted the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, when they thought that the judicial branch uh, was going to remain very weak, they they only gave originally and in the original context uh, power to the judicial branch to adjudicate individual opinions. There was no specific language in the Constitution about precedent and about the Supreme Court having nearly as much authority as they claim to have now. And that started, of course, with the very first case of uh, judicial review, which was established in Marbury versus Madison in 1803, where this concept of judicial review uh, was was designed by a decision from the Supreme Court. So essentially that court, which uh, John Jay, who was, of course, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers, he was the first uh, Supreme Court chief justice and was part of that decision that uh, that basically said, well, if Article 3 is to mean anything, then we need to have the power of judicial review. Well, is that accurate according to the actual text of the U.S. Constitution? Um, that one case in the very, very, very beginning actually uh, basically legitimized the concerns that some of the anti-federalists had about this runaway judiciary. And the one thing that I think would have been better to uh, to be in Article 3 it was a very precise limitation on judicial authority, limitation on uh, the Supreme Court not having this idea of judicial supremacy, which is basically the idea that the Supreme Court, as the interpreter and um, an applier of the law and the U.S. Constitution to the other political branches and also um, civil cases between private parties, that their precedent then um, essentially means that they're in a constitutional convention of sorts every time that they sit on uh, as a court because any of their decisions that they hand down um, that is by their own definition and the precedent of the Supreme Court basically saying that they are the final arbiter of what the Constitution says and what it means and the problem with that is that there's no one who is able to go in and say, well, wait a second, clearly, Supreme Court, you got this wrong. Clearly, you've acted as an oligarchy and you've acted as tyrants in your um, majority on the Supreme Court. And and clearly, this is a false, wrong or inadequate interpretation and analysis of the U.S. Constitution. What would have been better is either to restrain the judicial branch and um, and specifically have a provision against this idea of judicial supremacy or uh, having a mechanism to say that there is an ability to vacate the precedential value of Supreme Court opinions. Now, that's really important, the precedential value, because uh, one of the obvious provisions of Article 3 is that there has to be a final determination on the merits. Um, if the opinion itself were vacated, then the, the litigants, the parties, would have to go back and relitigate. And that's um, against our fundamental notions of fairness. Um, and it wouldn't be fair to the parties to say, well, um, just because we vacated this decision, now you have to go back and relitigate the whole thing. It certainly wouldn't be fair against the prevailing party. Uh, because if you go back and relitigate, there's, of course, um, the possibility, if not probability, that the outcome will be different. So 
the precedential value is what's important, meaning that the case as far as the final determination as to the two parties, as to the people who are actually involved in the case, uh, that still remains. But then as far as that binding anyone else in the country, anyone who's not a party to the case, any other states, any other litigants, um, any other cases, that would basically be nullified. And that type of idea, um, we could have one of two ways of doing this. Which So one would be that judicial supremacy is never a thing. Um, the That Article 3, in the original sense that it was designed, doesn't give judicial supremacy uh, any footing. And so the original idea was that the judicial branch would only determine cases as to the parties. No precedential value uh, whatsoever. And so anyone who would want to um, to have any sort of... Uh, a change in in law or um, or other type of uh, judicial opinion specifically apply to them would have to go through the litigation process. Um, that's what I think is very clear uh, was the original intent. But even absent that, if we have um, and we still subscribe to this idea of judicial supremacy, um, this idea that precedent. Uh, pertains to everyone in America from the Supreme Court because it's binding over all lower courts, uh, that whole idea, then there has to be a mechanism to override or nullify the precedent value of a clearly erroneous, unconstitutional Supreme Court decision that's based on activism. So um, so that's that's just kind of an overview of where we're at right now, because um, we see that we're under basically um, a couple of different constitutions, right? We have the original constitution in um, in the articles, you know, the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution plus the all 27 amendments. OK, so we have that written constitution, but then we have um, the secondary constitution, which is all of the laws that have been legislated by Congress throughout American history. Then we also have this other constitution, which is the interpretation, application, and judicial supremacy oligarchy from the U.S. Supreme Court. That is the case opinions uh, since 1803 in Marbury versus Madison. And this is, by the way, what's very interesting about law school is that uh, law school only teaches the Constitution as written by the the U.S. Supreme Court in its history. It doesn't start with the actual text of the Constitution. It doesn't even start with um, any of the laws that were made in furtherance of the Constitution. Uh, Nobody going through law school or sitting from the bar has to know anything about um, the actual law, but only about what uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has said about the Constitution. And so constitutional law in law school starts with Marbury versus Madison, the idea of judicial review, the idea of judicial supremacy, and teaches that as constitutional and historical fact. And this is why a lot of lawyers and advocates only um, are oriented in their mind because of the way that we teach this in law school in America to only argue within the context of the Supreme Court's constitution. And that's the judicial opinions, which have come out since 1803. That's wrong. Uh, we need to go back as advocates, and I'm speaking to fellow lawyers who are listening to this, um, we need to go back and advocate for the original Constitution, not um, just whatever doctrines the Supreme Court have said matter uh, for the U.S. Constitution and have said are 
uh, are the law now and here are all the tests that we've ordained and established. Well, um, in terms of the actual functioning of a judicial branch, the founders, even including the Federalists, never intended the judicial branch to have this type of judicial supremacy that they're exercising today. So that is a problem. Um, so when we look at this whole concept of judicial reform, um, this is a very, this, this was a very long conversation and discussion, and I'm grateful that, that you're here with me today talking about this. Um, this is a long way of saying I don't disagree that we need to look at judicial reform. Um, what I disagree with in terms of the proposed uh, or what I anticipate will be the proposed recommendations from the Biden commission is first, it's not it's not bipartisan. Like, I mean, let's be real. That's just a complete farce. That's ridiculous. You can look very plainly at the composition. Um, you also have to look at the merit of the ideas and also can you versus should you. So we're going to uh, take a break really quick here and then come back and talk about uh, what the Biden commission is uh, saying it's going to do, uh, whether they can do that, and whether or not some of these um, probable proposed solutions are even a good idea. So we'll be right back with more here on Just the Truth. Welcome back to Just the Truth podcast. I'm Jenna Ellis, and we are talking about uh, this idea of judicial supremacy. And I want to make sure that I point out that we are so grateful uh, to my good friends at Thomas More Society for sponsoring this podcast. You can go to thomasmoresociety.org, find out about all the great work uh, that we do there. I am special counsel with the Thomas More Society. Uh, we are representing churches across the country in the midst of all of these, uh, the pandemic uh, closure orders, all of the unconstitutional ways that uh, the executive is trying to overreach in a lot of states. Um, if you'd like to be involved with donations uh, to support this great nonprofit, please go to thomasmoresociety.org. All right, so we are talking about this whole uh, concept and this really this false concept of judicial supremacy, um, and there's so much more that can be said on this, and um, I will probably uh, very soon do, do another um, podcast about just the concept of judicial supremacy. And by the way, um, definitely tune in on Wednesday, uh, this Wednesday, which, uh, let me see what date that is. It would be the 14th, uh, April 14th, where my good friend uh, Robert George, uh, Dr. George, who is a Princeton professor in constitutional law, he will be joining me on uh, Just the Truth uh, TV on Real America's Voice uh, for a further conversation about all of this. Um, he is one of my favorite people, really, really brilliant um, in his articulation of all of this and how he teaches his students. He teaches them, by the way, in the right way. Um, very, very few law schools uh, and law professors uh, actually go back to the idea of the original constitution and what uh, was meant by all of the terms, all the separation of powers, this whole idea of the judicial branch, where it is in context of Article 3, uh, where it's gone off the rails since 1803 and Marbury v. Madison. Um, all of those things are so important for future lawyers and, um, and any American citizen, like uh, all of you who are listening uh, and participating in this discussion right now. Um, that's so important for us to all understand. And it is such a shame that law schools do not teach that by and large across the country today. Um, even though I love my alma mater, um, University of Richmond School of Law, um, in my constitutional law class, uh, you know, we started out by Marbury versus Madison and, you know, this whole concept. And I was so frustrated with how uh, constitutional law was taught in law school as a law student because I had already came into law school 
with um, a better education uh, from courses I had taken even as early as high school uh, in constitutional law from Michael Ferris, who's now the head of, and the president and CEO of our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, he used to be the um, co-founder and uh, president of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. He also started Patrick Henry College. A lot of you are very familiar with him. Uh, But he's been teaching constitutional law at Patrick Henry College, and then before that, um, just courses to homeschool students. Um, I was one of them way back in the day uh, in constitutional law. And so I had been grounded in understanding, well, wait a minute, (laughs) this whole concept of judicial supremacy, starting out with judicial review, that doesn't really jive with what I've always been taught and what I understand from the actual text that I had read of the U.S. Constitution. So we need to do a better job of uh, teaching our future advocates and our future lawyers um, and future judges, by the way, future Supreme Court justices, um, to understand what the original intent and design of the Constitution uh, was, what it still is, and how judicial supremacy has gotten uh, completely, completely, um, I keep saying off the rails, but, you know, that's really what it is. And so this whole idea of a commission to review uh, the judicial branch is not inherently a bad idea. And some of you listening to this may be thinking, wait a second, I tuned in for this for you to totally slam Biden. Well, I'm getting there. But, um, But the idea of looking at the judicial branch and seeing, okay, how can we reform the judicial branch isn't an inherently bad idea. There are um, there are a lot of organizations that have been doing this for years and years and years, um, one of them being our friends at the Convention of States Project. Uh, one of those, uh, the official COS project, um, one of the subject matters on the Convention of States petition is judiciary reform, right? So this isn't, um, if this were truly a bipartisan commission, and if I really thought that Biden and his handlers were approaching this in a constitutionally minded America first kind of way, um, then I would actually be all for this and say, you know, let's look at the runaway judiciary. Let's look at uh, maybe some ways that um, Article 3 has been misinterpreted, misapplied, and this insane power grab Um, that the Anti-Federalists were genuinely concerned with back in 1787. Let's look at reorienting our system of government to better uh, aim at that goal. That inherently is not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. The problem is that Biden isn't going to have and, and already doesn't have a bipartisan commission. He's also looking at this idea of court packing. So first, we have to define uh, court packing because this this always is laughable to me when people go on my social media and they're like, well, what about Trump's 200 plus judges? That was court packing. Well, no, guys. I mean, like, let's be honest. If you are a troll that is still posting that on my Twitter, you are just making yourself look like an absolute fool because court packing is very different than nominating and appointing federal judges when there are judicial vacancies. It's very simple math. And all of you know that I became a lawyer because one of the reasons of of many, but I like to say I became a lawyer because I hate math. Um, But this is very simple math that even lawyers can do when there are, let's just say, X number of of judges, let's just take the Supreme Court for example. We currently have nine justices that are on the Supreme Court, nine seats. When one seat is vacated by either death of the incumbent or retirement of the incumbent, which has happened a lot, right? 
um, over our nation's history because no one lives forever when there is a vacancy. And so that nine number drops to eight. So there is eight plus one vacancy. Then our constitution provides the mechanism for the current sitting president when that vacancy arises to nominate a new justice to fill that spot. And then uh, along with advice and consent of the Senate. That's what we saw with Kavanaugh, with Gorsuch, with Amy Coney Barrett. And by the way, with Obama's judges, um, and nominees with Bushes and then, you know, back throughout the course of, of our American history. Um, we can talk about, you know, advice and consent of the Senate, the whole idea of Merrick Garland when he was appointed after the death and uh, of Justice Scalia. Um, the Senate basically refused to give their consent. Now, I would have liked Mitch McConnell to just say that, to say, rather than trying to create, you know, this rule of, well, this is in the last year of your presidency and blah, blah, blah. Um, because that came back and kind of bit uh, the Republicans a little bit in the butt, right? Because they, um, Mitch McConnell tried to create and fabricate this this other rule instead of just saying, hey, the Constitution gives the Senate the power to provide advice and consent. We're not consenting. We don't, we have the majority. We don't like Merrick Garland. We're going to hold the seat open until the next president. That's perfectly constitutional. That's what they did. And, um, and so, Obama still fulfilled his his obligation under the U.S. Constitution to nominate someone, and the Senate did their job too. But all of those things occurred during judicial vacancies. So you had nine minus one equals eight, okay? And then when ultimately Justice Gorsuch uh, was nominated and then the Senate provided advice and their consent, Justice Gorsuch became Justice Gorsuch, and now we had a plus one and we returned to nine. Okay, so those are judicial vacancies. Packing the court means that you add new seats onto the court. So it would be the current nine plus plus one or more. Okay, so then you end up with a number of seats greater than nine. Or if you're talking about just the federal judiciary, you have a number that is greater than the current sitting federal a judge number in any particular um, either circuit court, district court, or any federal bench. Okay, you're adding seats. That's what court packing means because when you look at the composition of the circuit courts and the Supreme Court, uh, they uh, they are opinions by majority. When you have um, the circuit courts with a 2-1 holding of the three panel that's on there or when they have an en banc decision and you have um, the majority holding, right? The purpose of court packing is to change the majority. Now, are there other legitimate uh, arguments for expanding the number of seats on the bench? Well, it depends on uh, what, the, what the goal is and how and where you define this. So can Congress, with the Judiciary Act, which the Judiciary Act is actually the provision of law according to Article 3 that designates how many justices are on the Supreme Court, that number is not fixed in the Constitution. So people who say, well, this isn't unconstitutional for Biden to pack the court. Well, that's true. Um, but Biden can't, it would have to be an act of Congress. Okay. So we need to separate our branches here for Biden through an executive order. That would totally be unconstitutional. He does not have the power to do that. But Congress, because remember we read the text of article three, Congress, uh, has the ability, uh, through the judiciary act, which that's been amended several times in our nation's history, um, to designate how many justices are on the Supreme Court, that number has changed throughout our nation's history. 
Um, I mean, we've expanded the court from five to nine, right? Um, and the uh the the composition of the circuit courts um any because remember any other such inferior courts as congress shall from time to time designate so can they change um rather than having 13 circuit courts could we say okay the ninth circuit has been ridiculously out of hand um they cover way too much uh mass and area so given um, you know, the, the population density given, you know, some other things, we're going to break, uh, the ninth circuit into, uh, two circuits and we're going to give, you know, the North and and South and we're going to create a a different circuit. Well, sure. Congress can do that. So can, isn't really the question here. If we're talking about Congress, the should question, the policy question, the rationale question is where we get sticky because, If the only reason, like Joe Biden and his handlers are clearly advocating for, the only reason that they want to expand the number of justices sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court is so that they can have the majority again. Because um, when we've had for quite a few years, um, for quite a while, we have had a liberal majority on the U.S. Supreme Court. We have had at least five judges who justices who tended to vote liberal on all of the social issues and the democrats were totally fine with that they didn't talk about court packing they didn't care it's only after um amy coney barrett and the perceived 5-4 majority of conservative judges which by the way that's not meaning um they the republicans win every time no it's 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 justices who will look at the original constitution they won't care about precedent. They won't care what the Supreme Court has said before. Um, Sorry, decisis is a thing. We get that. But they they know that as the highest court in the land, they have to look at the text of the original Constitution and hold according to that text. So if that means that they overturn Roe versus Wade, for example, if they overturn some of this bad precedent, then they will. And they can because they should, Right. So that's what a conservative majority means. And hopefully we we should, if operating, functioning legitimately, we should have a Supreme Court that has nine conservatives that say, we understand that our role in our position is to be completely unbiased, impartial, non-political. We will look at the text of the Constitution. We know that we are the inferior branch. We're a non-political branch. And we will not hold according to our own individual, personal, partisan policy preferences, but we will simply faithfully apply the text of the U.S. Constitution to the law and fact uh, in cases that arise in front of us. That's that's the entire role of the judicial branch. But because we have this insane oligarchy now, the Democrats are really concerned about having lost their majority of the judicial branch because they've bought into this lie of judicial supremacy. They have also uh, decided that they have... Uh, that they need rather a Supreme Court that will simply rubber stamp uh, anything that the two political branches do. So when Congress, uh, a Democrat controlled Congress, creates a law that violates the supreme law of the land, the U.S. Constitution, because remember, the Constitution says all legislative authority is given to Congress, but also Congress can only make law in furtherance of the U.S. Constitution and the limited power and provisions that it gives to Congress. So when they step outside of those bounds, because Congress is bound by the U.S. Constitution, without the U.S. Constitution, they wouldn't even exist, right? So when they are given power by the U.S. Constitution and they go outside of that, they should be held accountable. When the executive branch, when Biden 
is legislating by Obama's phone and his pen and goes outside of legitimate executive branch authority, then he should be held accountable for that. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Democrats do not want to be held accountable. So they're using this commission on judicial review to pretend that they are looking in a bipartisan fashion at judicial review. Clearly, they're not. And this is a flashback, by the way, which uh, I, I have to play on here because this is uh, Joe Biden when he was then Senator Biden. And I don't have an exact date on here, um, but this, just given what people are wearing, it looks like it's probably in uh, the 70s or, or 80s. But, um, but this is where then Senator Biden is asserting that packing the court is a quote-unquote bonehead idea. L- listen to this. President Roosevelt clearly had the right to send to the United States Senate, the United States Congress, a proposal to pack the court. It was totally within his right to do that. He violated no law. He was legalistically absolutely correct. But it was a bonehead idea. It was a terrible, terrible mistake to make. And it put in question for an entire decade the independence of the most significant body, including the Congress, in my view, the most significant body in this country, the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Okay, so Joe Biden's actually correct here on a couple of things, and I wish he would go back and listen to himself when he actually was lucid and, you know, had some some good thoughts there. Um, he's right in the sense that uh, that there is no unconstitutional reason that a sitting president can't propose something to Congress. Obviously, we all know that. But I agree with him. It's a bonehead idea. Why? Because it makes the the independence and the impartiality of the judicial branch in question. Because if a sitting president wants to pack the court, it's like rigging a jury in your favor. Right. That's exactly what it is. But the one thing I disagree with, and you can see how he has and America, by and large, has bought into this idea of judicial supremacy because he's saying, I think the most significant body other than Congress, the most significant body in the United States of America. Well, no, go back and look and read. Look at the Constitution. Read the Federalist Papers. The judicial branch was designed to be the weakest branch. We should not have to care who's sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court. It shouldn't be this activist partisan branch. It should be the weakest branch. But now he's he's saying, you know, other than Congress, in my opinion, well, the, the Constitution actually <laughs> says that, right? They're supposed to be the weakest branch. And, and that's why coordinate is the term, the proper terminology, rather than co-equal. And so when he's talking about the judicial branch and the Supreme Court being the most important body, you know that this has really, really gone off the rails. But he's right that it's a bonehead idea because whatever the Biden commission is going to propose when clearly they're not even bipartisan to begin with. But when they propose packing the court, which would give under Article 2 Joe Biden the authority then to nominate 
justices and judges to fill the newly created seats, that is a partisan power grab. So any sort of reform that should be proposed should not come from the individuals who would benefit from it. If anything, judicial reform proposals shouldn't come from a presidential commission. It should come from an independent, bipartisan party of uh, or, or a commission comprised and designated from we the people. It should come from something like a convention of states where delegates from each state go and debate uh, judicial reform, debate what would be the best mechanism here. Um, it could constitutionally come from Congress uh, who debates and proposes an amendment or some kind of judicial reform uh, that could be either an act of Congress or it could be um, a, a proposed constitutional amendment that would then have to go to three-fourths of the states for ratification, right? And it would have to have the consent of three-fourths of the states in order to ratify that amendment. Um, but even Congress, because they're, they are currently majority Democrat held, would should be very, very cautious in any sort of legislation that's amending the Judiciary Act, pr- proposing judicial reform, when they would be ones who would benefit by it. Um, This should come, this type of proposal for reform uh, should come from the people. And um, there is, and I I want all of us and and as conservatives to be really careful how we um, attack this commission because the idea of judicial reform is not a bad one. Inherently, I think we actually need judicial reform. So be careful to not just attack judicial reform because it's a bad method and it's a bad commission, right? We have to parse those ideas carefully. Um, But also be really careful what you attack as far as Congress's ability to provide judicial reform. Because if we in the future, uh, when we have um, a majority Republican or majority, hopefully um, conservative, because you know, Republicans, a lot of Republicans aren't conservative anymore. When we have um, a majority conservative uh, House and Senate, then we may be and will want to be advocates for judicial reform that is keeping within the goal and structure of the Constitution. And so the problem here, the fundamental problem is not that Joe Biden is proposing judicial reform. The problem is that he is proposing judicial activism. The problem is that the, that bipartisan And the Democrat and Republican parties no longer stand for this unanimous recognition and unanimous agreement of what the goal is. That's the problem. The problem isn't the commission. The problem isn't judicial reform. The problem is that we don't agree with our founders as a nation anymore that being American, that our American government means that the goal that we all unanimously agree on is legitimacy of government to preserve and protect our unalienable rights given by God, our creator. If we all agreed on that premise, I'd be fine with this commission. I'd say, you know what? Let's all go and debate this like what our founders did in 1787. Let's go and get together and debate judicial reform because we would all be coming from a unanimous good faith position that we agree 
on the proper role of government. We agree on the principles of limited government, on legitimate government. And that the only reason that we're even discussing judicial reform is because we all understand that we can amend our constitution, we can change the Judiciary Act, we can amend our laws, we can go through Congress, all of these things in the viable constitutional mechanisms in order to better better preserve and protect our individual rights, to better create a more perfect union. That's the whole goal of the U.S. Constitution. We could look at things like the Anti-Federalist Papers, like Anti-Federalist 15 and others, to say, you know what, they, they might have had a point here. And as much as we're advocates for the U.S. Constitution, we've amended it um, in some bad ways. Um, we can <laughs> talk about Amendment 17 in, in another podcast. But we can say, you know, they might have had a point there. And in the way that um, the last you know, 250 years of uh, judicial overreach and of um, judicial supremacy and judicial activism has taken place in this country, then yeah, you know what, they might have had a point. So let's go back and evaluate this. And how can we get get the judicial branch back on track? Um, But we have to come to these types of arguments, we have to come to the table all agreeing on the foundational premise of what's the goal. And the goal of Biden's commission is not to better preserve and protect our fundamental God-given unalienable rights. No, Biden's commission and his goal is to promote judicial activism. His goal is to further advance the oligarchy rule of the U.S. Supreme Court by expanding the court by court packing. His goal in all of these different subject areas when he's talking about the size of the court, the justice's tenure, the court's practices. He is not interested in doing anything that our founders understood and recognized based on truth is the legitimate role of government. He is looking at advancing his own power and his own party's power. And that's something that I will never, ever, ever, ever be in favor of. And that's where, for those of you who are waiting around for me to slam Joe Biden, there's the slam of Joe Biden. Because this whole supposed bipartisan commission is not interested in anything legitimate. And that's where, as conservatives, we need to definitely attack that and say, listen, Joe Biden, you are not, for one, you're getting all of these bonehead ideas from a group of really progressive liberals. You are going to advance all of these alleged solutions with the idea of solidifying the Democrat Party's power grab. That's not reform. That's activism. So this commission is a really bad idea um, for a lot of different ways. Now, is it unconstitutional? No. Um, you know, Biden can suggest to Congress anything, you know, any idea he wants to. But the ideas themselves um, are unconstitutional in the sense that our Constitution is derived from the mandate of the Declaration of Independence of the legitimate role of government. So we as conservatives need to reject this commission. We need to reject Joe Biden's activism. And even more, we need to reject the idea that the judicial branch is the most important and supreme branch of government. We need to go back learn a civics lesson, learn about the U.S. Constitution in its original context and design, and seek to provide ideas and goals and remedies and solutions that advance what the U.S. Constitution actually was 
was created for, which is to preserve and protect our individual rights. We have to get back to the original idea and the design of government. And it is not that we are at the mercy of nine robed justices or nine plus if Biden gets his way. The judicial branch in the Supreme Court was never meant to be an oligarchy. We are supposed to have limited government, limited power, checks and balances. The judiciary is an important, essential check on the political branches of government, but we're never, ever, ever meant to be the sole arbiter of what the U.S. Constitution says, what it means, and to apply that to everyone so broadly that when you look at somebody like Chief Justice Roberts, um, no one elected him, and certainly uh, the judiciary and the Supreme Court was never meant to be this um, I always think of Star Wars, you know, the the Jedi um, Council up there, you know, who were all of these supposed, um, you know, the the um, not shamans, but you know, the the uh, the the wisdom thinkers of the day, and they're the ones who are sitting on this, you know, Jedi commission of having all wisdom that they would then teach the young Padawans. You know, that's kind of how we have put the Supreme Court at a position that the U.S. Constitution never, ever, ever gave them power or authority uh, to prescribe. So so the bottom line here, um, and, I'll, and I'll end with this, is that our U.S. Constitution requires limited, limited government, and judicial reform is absolutely necessary, but the reform needs to come from interested citizens who understand that a runaway Supreme Court and a runaway judiciary is something to restrain, not to empower. Packing the court is a mechanism of empowering judicial activism. We need to stand firmly against that. We need to be vocal advocates against that type of judicial activism uh, push. And we need to be advocates for genuine conservative judicial reform. And I'll be back tomorrow with more of Just the Truth, sponsored by the Thomas More Society. You can find them at thomasmoresociety.org.